Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in 1 Kings chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 15. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and and none like you shall ever rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you. All your days, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, we confess that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. Our life is found in your word. And so, God, we come needy this morning, poor and weak, and we desire to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask that you speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. This morning, we do continue in these first 11 chapters of the book of Kings, divided into two books for us today, but in history, just simply one. We are looking at the life of King Solomon, the rise and fall of King Solomon, the third king of Israel, perhaps the wealthiest and the greatest of all Israelite kings. And it's important for us, as we've noted over the past few weeks, to recognize that when we look at this material in Kings, that we're not just simply reading a chronological record of history. That no, this history is recorded with an intent and purpose. In fact, our Jewish forefathers, the Old Testament church, did not recognize this as history at all. 
They actually refer to all of this section of the Bible as prophecy. That it is history with an intention, a purpose to teach and instruct the church. It is history designed to teach us about God, his works and his ways. It's history designed to teach us about God's uh, manner in dealing with us and also about ourselves. And this morning, we enter into the real heart of Solomon, the conundrum of Solomon's character. In verse 3, we read something that is emphatically true, that Solomon loved God, that he loved the Lord, and that he walked in the statutes of David, his father. And we must affirm this, that Solomon loved God and he was committed to him. But yet also, it's been foreshadowed for us that in 1 Kings 11, that Solomon's life takes a turn. And in verses 2 through 4 there, we learn that Solomon did not just simply love God. He also loved his wives. And he ends up being led by those women into idolatrous practices in his old age. And they turned away his heart from the living and true God who we're also told he loved. And it's due to this unfortunate turn that a lot of people in dealing with Solomon and say, well, the best way to handle this material is that there's an early Solomon who was faithful and true to God, and then there's a late Solomon who takes a disastrous turn. It's a neat scheme. It's understandable why we would want to use it, but it's also a vast oversimplification of what's happening here. It's a vast oversimplification of God, of what God desires to say to us today. Because what we find here is that it's an oversimplification because it's an oversimplification of the human predicament. The predicament that you and I find ourselves in as those who are loved by God, as those who have been forgiven by God, and yet also still limp along with the presence of sinful weaknesses in our lives. And so Solomon, like us, is far more complex and he's far more complicated when we look at his actual life and record across these 11 chapters. We find that he is... In his life, not really one who fits into two neat periods. But rather, we have his successes and his shortcomings recorded for us. We have his failures and his faithfulness. And they're all recorded for us to teach us prophecy, to instruct us. And so we're to learn from both Solomon's vices and from his virtues. And we're to take all of that in, and this is why God gives us these wonderful 11 chapters about the rise and fall of Solomon. And so what is it exactly that God would have us see this morning? Three things. We'll consider the fruit of wisdom. This is Solomon's success. We'll also consider the seeds of Solomon's compromise, his failures. And then we'll consider the shadow of things to come. And so let's look at each in order. First, we see the fruit of wisdom. Solomon goes to Gibeon, which was one of the high places, and he encounters God there in a dream. And God asks him a question. He says, ask what I shall give you. It's a blank slate here presented for Solomon. He can ask anything of God. And it's in this strange moment 
that we see the fruits of Solomon's wisdom because there's three things going on in his character uh, that are commended to us in his response. And the first thing you'll note is that there's knowledge. And by knowledge, I mean theological knowledge. If you follow in verse 6, you see where Solomon in his response to God begins. He says, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. These terms that he uses, great, steadfast love, servant, this is all covenant language. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. All language being pulled from the book of Deuteronomy once again. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. This is in accord with God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 in Psalm 132 that one of the sons of David's body would sit upon his throne forever. And so Solomon here, as he responds to God, he's responding to him in the way that God has revealed himself. You see, Solomon doesn't have a God of his own imaginings. He doesn't have a God who he's created in his own image, one who's convenient for him. But rather, the God that Solomon speaks to is the one that has revealed himself in these gracious covenants. The God who's making himself known through this family of Abraham, progressively through time. The God who will be made known in Jesus Christ walking upon the earth. And so there's knowledge. And this is part of Solomon's virtue that's on display for us. But we see it's not only knowledge. There's also humility. If you follow in the next verse, in verse 7, Solomon says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, it could be confusing here because Solomon is somewhere between the ages of 20 and 30. And so he's not a small boy. But rather what he's saying is his knowledge and experience is like that of a child for this great task that is in front of him. And so it's in humility that he expresses his inadequacy. His inadequacy for the task of caring for God's people. But you see, it's not just a low opinion of himself. But rather Solomon's humility is found in looking to God in dependence and trust. And friends, this is what true biblical humility is. It's not just simply when we recognize that we're sinners. It's not when we simply recognize weakness and inadequacy. It's when we recognize all of those things and then we turn in loving trust and dependence to look to God. And this is what Solomon does. And so he takes his theological knowledge and he adds to that a humility. And then finally in verse 9, We see the fruit of his wisdom in self-denial. Solomon makes his request here. And listen carefully to his petition. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great people? In humility, he asks for an understanding mind. The ESV translation is fine, but it's also helpful to consider that this phrase, this request, is not simply about intellect. It's not that Solomon was asking to be smart. This is not what he's after. But literally translated, Solomon asked for a hearing heart. 
The word that's translated mind for us there is used throughout the passage and is translated heart on all the other occasions. And so Solomon is asking for God to give him a hearing heart, a listening heart. That is that he would be able to discern between good and evil as he is instructed by God in God's wisdom. And so Solomon seeks all of this, you'll also see, not for his own self-aggrandizement. He doesn't seek his own benefit. But why does he ask for this? To govern your people. And this is Solomon's wisdom. Is he seeks to give himself in service to God, in service to God's people. And he says, yes, give me what is necessary in order to accomplish that task. This is the virtue of Solomon. He asks that he might be able to judge between good and evil. Of course, you may have your ears pricked there. These words have appeared in Scripture before, in a very provocative place in Genesis 3, where we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where Adam and Eve grasp after that fruit. And so is it wrong for Solomon to request this? Not at all. Adam and Eve sought after the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could be the judge of what is good and what is evil. They sought wisdom apart from God. They sought to be autonomous and independent. But look what Solomon does. He's doing just the opposite. That he asks for wisdom. He's asking for a hearing heart so that he can submit himself to God and so that he can govern God's people. This is serious virtue. Serious wisdom on display. That Solomon's working with a knowledge of God's covenant, a knowledge of God's way in the world. He knows and understands it. He doesn't treat it lightly. That he's also willing to deny himself. And he lives in humility before God, recognizing his inadequacy and dependence. This is Solomon who loves God. The man bought by God. The man forgiven by God. And this is the character, the gratitude that flows from that place of being God's son. But we also know that it's not the whole story about Solomon. Because we also see a second thing in this passage. We also see the seeds of compromise. There are the seeds of compromise that apply to Solomon and there are the seeds of compromise that apply to you and apply to me. Verses 1 and 2, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. This is where we encounter verses that actually challenge the virtue of Solomon. It's the preoccupation of some people as they read their Bibles to make all of these great men in the Old Testament heroes, but that's not exactly what the Bible does. We're actually asked to visit both their virtues and their vices. And here we are being exposed to the very cracks in the foundation of Solomon's life that will catch up with him in chapter 11. And there's three compromises in particular that happen in these two verses. You'll remember last week that I mentioned in reading the book of Kings, it's helpful to keep the book of Deuteronomy open as well. These two are brought together in a wonderful fusion. 
because what we learn here is that Solomon makes a political alliance through marriage, and he does so with a particular nation of the earth, Egypt. Now, does Old Testament Israel have some history with Egypt? Yes, a long history. And in Deuteronomy 17, God warns the Israelite king that he's not to return to Egypt. He's not to look to Egypt for political alliance, that the Israelite king is to entrust himself to God. And what is Solomon here doing? The Solomon who loves God. He's looking to another source for security. He secures a marriage alliance so that he would have Egypt on his side, having his back. Secondly, though, we also see that he secures that alliance by marrying a foreign woman. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, this is explicitly forbidden. That the Israelites were not to intermarry, and they were not to intermarry so that they did not become idolatrous because foreign wives would bring their gods along with them. And we find this pattern over and over throughout the Old Testament, that the Israelites would be led into apostasy by this. Yet Solomon secures his marriage alliance, uh, secures his political alliance by marrying a foreign woman and bringing her into Jerusalem. But third, we also find something else here. We find mention in verse 2 that the people were sacrificing at the high places, the high places were the cult shrines that were left behind from previous generations who had occupied the land before Israel came into it. Israel was supposed to scrub those clean because they were associated with wrong cultic worship activity and that they were always going to be a temptation and a distraction. The people, as far as we know right then at that time, were worshiping the true God. They were just doing so in the wrong place. Okay. But this was still dangerous activity because these shrines were still associated with false gods. And so Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 12 explicitly lay out that there was to be this process in which they were moving from many different shrines to one in Jerusalem. And yet Solomon himself was participating at these shrines. They were not being destroyed as they were supposed to. This is all presented for us right next to Solomon's virtues. All of these vices, very plain statutes, part of what it meant for Solomon to respond in gratitude to the grace of God that it initiated with him. He was to walk in faithfulness, and yet Solomon was negotiating his obedience. He was taking on a foreign wife. He was securing a political alliance to make his life more stable, to establish his place in the ancient Near East. And he was not removing the high places. And so what are we supposed to make of this? How exactly are we supposed to view Solomon? And the most pressing thing for us to see here, the point is that Solomon's later compromises that we know of in chapter 11, that they were cracks in his character early on. They have, this compromise emerged from the cracks in his character that we find here. And friends, this is the way that it works in your life and in my life as well. That the cracks in the foundation, the seeds of compromise, don't just simply come from nowhere. 
You can see across these 11 chapters that the things that come back to haunt Solomon in chapter 11 were here from the very start. He was sitting light to what God asked him to do and God's claim on his life in very significant areas. And so he had allowed foreign women, he was taking them in, and he had a foreign wife who introduced him to her gods, and he ends up being overwhelmed by them. And so those cracks inevitably grow into fissures and break wide open like a dam collapsing. But it doesn't really help us to say early Solomon who took a bad turn late in life. It's rather more helpful to see that Solomon had compromises, things that he did not address. And it's those seeds of compromise that turn into tremendous failures. And so, friends, he asked for a discerning, a listening heart. And yet he was not evaluating and weighing his own heart because it's from the heart that everything flows, as we saw last week in Proverbs 4, verse 23, 24, that everything flows from the human heart. And Solomon loved things next to God, and those things that he loved next to God end up triumphing over God. And so from Solomon's failures, we're called to that awareness, to recognize what can happen in the human heart. Augustine explains it beautifully. In his first book that he wrote after converting the Confessions, still one of the most masterful autobiographies that we have in the Western world. Augustine writes about the human heart, and he explains that what we love in life directs us. And he says it's like weight, it's like gravity. It takes us to our proper place. And then he says, my weight, that which directs my life, is my love. Wherever I am carried, it is my love that is carrying me. And friends, this is critical for us to understand because what captures our affections, not simply what we profess, not simply what we say, not our knowledge, not what we can store away in our intellect, but what really captures us is what ends up directing our lives. We're carried by it. And this is why we have to be extremely discerning. We have to be discerning of ourselves. What is it that captures our affections? Yes, Solomon loved God. And then he comes to this disastrous end, and we'll address that end in coming weeks because it does take a pleasant turn. But he comes to that disastrous end because those loves that he nurtured, those loves that he justified, those loves in which he just ignored what God said and wasn't really concerned about it, those things, those very things were the things that came back to haunt him. And can't we just get really comfortable with these secondary loves? And we can justify them. We can say that they will never eclipse our love and our faithfulness to God. And this is the warning to us. Solomon would say the same thing. He was a great man, virtuous in many ways, and yet overtaken by his loves. The third thing we see here, though, from Solomon's life, we also learn of the shadow of things to come. In Colossians 2, Paul speaks of the entire Old Testament mosaic economy, and he says that all these things are a shadow 
of the substance, and the substance is Jesus Christ. All the kings, all the prophets, all the ceremonies, they're all pointing in one direction. As God progressively revealed himself across human history, God was making known the Redeemer who would come, the mediator who would come in the flesh in order to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And so Solomon himself, he too is a shadow of things to come. Psalm 72 celebrates Solomon's greatness, that he extended the reign of God and the borders of Israel and brought so much success, and the people were glad and happy, and yet inside of all that success, we see the shortcomings. Because Solomon's life is one massive parable for us that's directing us to something else. He's directing us to the substance. Because there would would be another who came, a son of David, nonetheless. A son of David who grew in wisdom and stature. He grew in favor with God and every person. It was that son of David who comes in wisdom and in self-denial and in true humility. And he lives a life of perfect righteousness. And he gives himself in self-denial for the good of his people. That he would atone for their sins, that he would destroy them and wipe out their sins. That he would take their penalty on their behalf. And friends, so even in Solomon, in all of his compromise, we're being directed to another. To look in faith, to have the eyes of faith, to see Jesus, because he is the true Solomon, the true son of David, who brings blessing and takes up his crown and rules over his people with true wisdom and understanding a listening heart. And it is that Jesus that we direct our attention to. And it's in him and in knowing him that the fruit of wisdom is ours that we can live in humility and self-denial because he leads us in that way and grants us his spirit to do so. It's in him that we can address those seeds of compromise, that we can trust him to sort out those things that are so complicated and the deceitfulness of our own hearts that we not be overwhelmed as Solomon was. It's the substance of the shadow, King Jesus, who safely guides you through all this. And so learn from Solomon's virtues. And yes, learn from Solomon's vices. And allow Jesus to work in you and direct you as you seek to walk in the ways of God. Let's ask for his help. We do thank you for the ways in which you've revealed yourself through the history of the world, the kings of Israel, in all of their complications, in all of their complexities with vices and virtues. And God, we ask that we would learn today from Solomon, that you would write this wisdom upon our heart, and that we would follow the true son of David, Jesus, and that with wisdom we may follow him, and that you may direct us, and that we also be able to displace those seeds of compromise that live inside of each of us. Grant us the courage to address those things. Help us to see them and to know ourselves. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.